Welcome to Understanding Congress, a podcast about the first branch of government. Congress is a notoriously complex institution, and few Americans think well of it. But Congress is essential to our republic. It's a place where our pluralistic society is supposed to work out its differences and come to agreement about what our laws should be. And that is why we are here to discuss our national legislature and to think about ways to upgrade it so it can better serve our nation. I'm your host, Kevin Kosar, and I'm a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, a think tank in Washington, D.C. The topic of this episode is what is the State of the Union address and why does Congress host it? Once per year, the President of the United States comes to the U.S. Capitol to deliver a speech known as the State of the Union Address. Usually, this happens in late January or early February, but it has occurred as late as March 1. Both members of the House of Representatives and Senators assemble for this speech, along with a whole lot of other people, including nearly all members of the President's Cabinet, Justices of the Supreme Court, and some other individuals, like former members of Congress. In modern times, the State of the Union has become quite a spectacle, with television cameras beaming the event to millions of homes. To discuss this grand affair, I have with me Matt Glassman. He is a senior fellow at the Government Affairs Institute, where he studies Congress. Prior to joining the Institute, Matt worked with me at the Congressional Research Service for 10 years. There, he wrote about congressional operations, separation of powers, appropriations, judicial administration, agency design, and congressional history. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start with the why. Why does Congress host a State of the Union address? Does the Constitution require it? The Constitution doesn't require, per se, the State of the Union address as we know it now, but Article 2, Section 3 does sort of contemplate the idea of a State of the Union message because it says the, says the president from shall time to time give the Congress information on the State of the Union and recommend to their consideration such measures as he shall judge necessary and expedient. So this idea of the president reporting back to Congress on what's going on in the administration and what he would like to see happen in the legislature is contemplated in the Constitution. So yes, it is there. It's not required to happen every year. It says from time to time. That's been interpreted as annually, but we don't have a State of the Union message every year. Sometimes presidents don't do it in their last year in office, and sometimes presidents don't do it right after they're inaugurated, right? They just sort of deliver a different message to Congress. But the idea is rooted in the Constitution, and it's rooted in sort of Anglo-American tradition. It was very traditional for the monarchy to go speak to parliament as it opened in, in English history as well. All right. So it's discretionary, which means Congress could, if it chose, refuse to hold a State of Union address. You know, in these high partisanship times, one could imagine a House with a Democratic majority that, that might have refused to allow President Donald J. Trump to appear. Or, you know, a Republican majority of the House could refuse President Joe Biden's wish to come and speak. And actually, for a president to show up for a State of the Union, there's got to be an actual resolution passed, right? Yes. I mean, in theory, certainly for the president to come stand on the House floor and talk, he is going to need sort of either the rules of the House and Senate or a specific resolution from the House and Senate to approve that. The president of the United States does not have any right to be in the House of Representatives or in the Senate giving a speech. Under the House rules, I believe also under the Senate rules, the president currently has floor privileges uh, to the chamber, so he can get in there under the current rules. But it is a function of the rules. There's nothing in the Constitution that would allow the president to come give this message 
in person. So first, you know, it's sort of they work it out behind the scenes when the president is, you know, has a date available. It works for everybody can come over. And then the House, uh, the Speaker of the House does formally send a letter to the president inviting him to come over. And then a resolution is passed by the two chambers, a concurrent resolution, setting up the joint session where they'll hear the president's address. And it's absolutely correct that, that you could imagine animosity between Congress and the president getting so high uh, that there wasn't a sort of State of the Union just as we know it. And the president could still send over a letter that was traditionally how it was done for most of the 19th century. And you can imagine, and I think during the Trump administration, people sort of saw that possibility that maybe Pelosi would be like, you're not coming over, dude, right? Send a letter and tell us what you think, but we're not giving you a stage in our chamber to do it. Now, of course, that didn't happen. And there's lots of reasons, both sort of politically and sort of normatively, that you don't want that sort of partisan animosity to upend the State of the Union, but it's totally plausible. And you could imagine a situation where it happened. Yeah, and I guess with the chambers being presently divided, Democratic control in the Senate, Republican tr- control in the House, if both chambers don't agree, then it doesn't happen. The president doesn't get to come over, right? It doesn't get to come over in sort of sort of the joint session that the that the current resolutions and practice um, sort of contemplate. But if, for instance, imagine if the House Republicans decided for whatever reason that it's not going to happen this year, that they didn't want Biden to come over for a State of the Union message. I think it's totally plausible that Biden might come over to the Senate and deliver his State of the Union address there. And again, that could be filibuster too, in theory, right? You can imagine situations. But just because you can't get a joint session going in Congress doesn't mean the president can't come over and give an address in one of the chambers. Um, and so all sorts of combinations are possible of this. And again, this is a level of partisan animosity that even sort of Trump versus the House Democrats didn't sort of create. And so it would have to be something sort of even more extraordinary uh, than anything we've seen over the last decade in order to break this tradition. Now, could you imagine a president of the United States deciding he was done with these in-person things and just sending a letter instead and having someone in his party read it on the floor the way they did in the 19th century? That's also plausible. And that would require less partisan animosity. It would just require a president who saw things differently. Um, I don't think that's likely either. I think most of the time the president believes the State of the Union address is a politically advantageous moment for him and the administration uh, if they do it in person. And so the letter would sort of downplay it uh, a lot. And so I don't see that happening either anytime soon. Yeah, I suppose uh, one could imagine is you have this trend line where thanks to technologies, it's just over the last 120 years, it's been easier and easier for a president to go public as the phrase is, that, you know, you could have a president who just decides to sit in in the White House and to just do a speech to the nation that way and basically call out the State of the Union and then send over a piece of paper and be like, okay, I'm just not putting up with you people. Yeah, I think totally plausible. I think the trappings of the State of the Union address give it a little more sort of public clout, a little more, right? I don't think, you know, this isn't, sometimes in Washington, you get a sense that everybody's watching something like this, when in reality, very few people are watching like watching this. The Monday Night Football game will vastly outdo the State of the Union address in ratings. But I do think the State of the Union address will get a higher audience than a typical presidential address from the Oval Office or, or from wherever. And so the presidents see that as somewhat advantageous to getting their message out. But you can imagine lots of different ways to do the State of the Union address. You can imagine a sort of climate in the country about a particular issue where a president decided to completely upend sort of what we expect from a state of the address and just give an address on one topic. And, you know, we've seen that on occasion in presidential addresses during moments of crisis. You know, Buchanan's address in December of 1860 at the opening of Congress uh, when he was a lame duck at that point was almost entirely about the slave crisis. Lincoln's uh, first inaugural was almost entirely about secession. So you can imagine presidents not doing sort of the laundry list of policy ideas if the moment was more sort of a crisis situation. You can imagine a very different type of address. Yeah. In the image of a future President Trump deciding to do a State of the Union through Tucker's Twitter or X. 
<laughs> feed just popped into my head. All right, we're going to move along. Vice President Carlson's X feed. <laughs> All right. So as you said, per the Constitution, uh, requiring the executive to report to Congress had two overt purposes. First, getting information from him since the person who oversees agencies and having access to their data, that could be useful that he could share this sort of information with the the legislature, because there's a principal-agent relationship between the legislature and the president. But it's also an opportunity for him to suggest policies for Congress to consider, to recommend them. What about today? Does the speech have purposes beyond that today? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing to note is that those two original purposes reflect sort of the, the old congressional calendar. I think one thing to keep in mind was that a typical annual address of the president, which is what they called the State of the Union before it sort of got its sort of modern nomenclature, typically happened in December, right after Congress met. And under the old calendar, Congress had often been out of session since the previous March, uh, or if it was the second session, they'd been out of session typically since around June. And so there really was a lot for the president to say. The administration had been the government in total for a period of six or even nine months in some cases when these annual addresses happened. So there was a lot to catch people up on. Like literally there was sort of news you could break about what was going on. I think that's a lot less true now uh, with Congress in session year round, oversight sort of an ongoing sort of process. I don't think there's a whole lot of surprises in the president's annual address about the actual state of the union. In the same way, I think communicating policies for Congress to consider also has a little less oomph than it did in the mid-19th century. So because, again, Congress is around full time. The president is proposing policies all the time from the administration. And so those two sort of natural purposes that the Constitution contemplates probably have shrunk a little bit in their value. But of course, there are other sort of things that the state of the union address provides too. One is an opportunity for the president to do a lot of interest group and sort of agency group politicking, right? Which is to come up with a distributive list of goodies uh, that he can mention to sort of promote or give returns back to different groups in his coalition, be it his partisan political coalition or his administration coalition of different agencies that he needs to keep happy. And I think this leads to sort of the most important thing about the State of the Union address is that it is what you might, political scientists might call a focusing event. The administration has a deadline here that they have to hit. They've got to decide what they believe about things at this point. And that's a good thing for the administration. It's healthy. A lot of times in the executive branch, you can sit around debating stuff with no end. But this forces the agencies to come up with their policies. And it forces the White House, the administration to choose what their policies are, not only as a priority matter of like what their agenda is, but actually what the policies are. If Biden, you know, in two months is going to come out of Congress, and I assume he's going to talk about his border policy, he's going to have to have a border policy. That's a good thing, right? It forces the administration to figure out what its policy is. And to that point, it's actually kind of an important deadline on the congressional executive calendar. And note, it also happens nowadays, roughly right before sort of the opening of, of budget season. Uh, the president's budget usually comes out shortly after uh, the State of the Union. So you can kind of see it as tied to sort of the administration has to finalize what it wants to prioritize and what it wants to put in its budget, and then they got to deliver that news to Congress. And these days, as the head of whichever party he, he's within, um, to some degree, he's setting the, the course for the team and reframing the brand in the public's eye, perhaps with a, in anticipation of the next election. Uh, so there's a bit of that PR exercise also going on. Well, as I mentioned in my introduction, it's a, it's a remarkable event that you have members of all three branches of government piling into the same building. There's a whole bunch of other folks, you know, like members of the diplomatic corps can be there. Prompts a gruesome thing to contemplate, but we got to because terrorism is a fact of modern life. Isn't it a 
pretty big risk to the continuity of government to have president, vice president, the whole Supreme Court, and so much of the legislative branch all together in this one place. And have they done any thinking about, like, is there a way to mitigate this risk a little bit? So, you know, we don't end up with a country that has no functioning government. Yeah, I mean, I think that's obviously a concern. You know, it's quite famous that there's sort of the designated survivor who doesn't go to the state union address, someone in the president's cabinet who stays away from the Capitol and indeed stays away from Washington during the state union address often. And that was put in place in sort of a Cold War sense where all of a sudden there were sort of ballistic missiles that we had no defense to that could blow up, you know, the entire city at once. And in some ways it's more symbolic than useful. It's not clear to me that like the Secretary of Labor would have a whole lot of political authority in the wake of sort of that sort of awful tragedy. But I do think it's something worth contemplating. And I don't think the answer is sort of distribute the people and have the state of the state of the union address sort of remotely for various people. I think it's important the government comes together, but it does highlight sort of the security concerns there. And to me, it says, you know, you need to maximize making sure the security is okay there. I think, you know, a legislature is sort of a decentralized system to begin with. It's why, thank God, we don't see a lot of assassinations of legislators. It doesn't solve you a lot politically. So the time that members of Congress and, and Congress itself is in danger is when they are all together. And that's why the security on the floor of the House and Senate is what it is. And it's why the security following Congress around when it sort of travels in mass, you know, if they're all going somewhere together, why the security is vastly beefed up. But obviously bringing the administration in too sort of ups the ante to it. Um, there's probably not an event regularly on the calendar of the United States that has a higher security level than the State of the Union address. If you're ever in downtown Washington on the night of the State of the Union, you can't get within a block of the Capitol. Uh, the perimeter really is the biggest perimeter you can imagine. But that doesn't, you know, mitigate all threats. But I do think that there's enough value in the State of the Union address and enough value in bringing the whole government together at least once a year that whatever risks there are that can't be mitigated by the security measures in place probably just have to be accepted because I think to not allow the government to come together in a whole would probably lose some of the symbolic value of the State of the Union address. Well, all right. That lies nicely into uh, criticisms of the modern State of the Union address. I, for one, have uh, groused that it, to some degree, confuses the American public into thinking that the president has way more power than he actually has, and it contributes to this sort of misunderstanding of our system, you know, that, oh, the president can just get up there and wave magic wands and make policy happen, as opposed to, no, it has to be really worked through the legislature in most instances. And some years ago, you wrote a, a blog post about the State of the Union, and it really fire online, got a lot of good reads. And here's one thing you wrote in it. Let me quote from you at length. As many very smart people would undoubtedly tell you today, the State of the Union address doesn't really matter much. Brendan Nyan, a professor, reminded us last year that instant polling is worthless, that the president doesn't actually often get an approval bounce from the speech, that unlike a debate, there's no chance of an unscripted moment. Professor John Sides reminds us that any policy or agenda effects from the speech are small at best. Journalist Ezra Klein notes today that the one dimension on which the address may have a strong impact, which is laying out the president's policy agenda, is basically a non-issue in an election year with a divided Congress. End quote. All right. So criticisms, you note them, uh, and I've made mine, yet you still think it's important. Why is the State of the Union address in its current modern format, important and worth doing? I think it's mostly important because it's one of the core rituals of democracy we have in the United States. And I think symbolically it gets it right. I completely agree that there's a misaligned sense that the president is the legislator in chief of the United States, 
and that this is reinforced all the time, right? It's certainly reinforced by presidential candidates running around the country telling you what's going to happen under their tax plan, under their budget proposal, right? Or when they're president, it sounds like they can just make laws, you know, as much, and the president of the United States can't make laws as much as he can walk on water. But the state of the interest is different. The state of the interest is symbolically sort of correct. I mean, it gets the constitutional structure of American government right. The president is the agent, right? The best way to think about the American government is as sort of a corporate board. And the president's the CEO running the company, which is the executive branch. And Congress is the board elected by the shareholders who are the people. And the state of the union address gets that right. The president, the CEO, comes over to the board and he has to basically beg them to give him authority to do stuff. And you hear that in the state of the union address. The president asks Congress to do things. He calls on Congress to do stuff. He yells at them for not doing stuff. But you know what? They have to do the stuff. And it's never more apparent than the state of the union that the president can't do this stuff on his own, that he needs the Congress to do it. And I think that is sort of essence of our republic, is that the House of Representatives and the Senate right, are fundamentally in charge, and the president is administering the law uh, that they have passed. I think the other important thing about the State of the Union Address is that it does bring the government together all at once. It's the only time on the calendar outside of the electoral events where the government does all come together. And I think that's important for people to see. It's important for people to see the Supreme Court justices sitting there. It's important for people to see the administration sitting in the House of Representatives. And because, you know, the other sort of event that brings the entire government together in the United States is the quadrennial inauguration. And the inauguration is exactly sort of the opposite of the, you know, core constitutional structure of our government. The, the inauguration is sort of a, a celebration of not monarchism, but of sort of the executive branch, right? It's all these cheering people for the executive. And that's not sort of the fundamental structure of our Constitution. The State of the Union Address is the fundamental structure of the Constitution. And I think it's good for people to see it. Um, and the things that go on in the State of the Union Address, sort of the, the rituals there of everyone in the room standing up and clapping when the president walks down the aisle, and everybody in the room standing up and clapping again when he's introduced, I think are beneficial in democracy. You know, Anglo-American you know, tradition has a lot of this in England, right? They have the famous slamming of the door in Parliament on the monarchy's people. In the United States, we don't have a ton of these ritualistic traditions surrounding the actual government itself. Our government is younger than the English government, right? It came out post-Enlightenment when these things were sort of brushed off a little bit intellectually. But the State of Union Address, in its current form, does do a nice job of reinforcing some of the core values of the Constitution. And I think that makes it worthwhile, even if, as everyone knows, sort of politically, it's become a non-event uh, in the way people normally think about political events influencing things. That is, how do they alter political outcomes? And they, it really doesn't. Yeah, let me just ask one more follow-up before we uh, end our chat. What do you think about the modern practice of the party in opposition to the president giving a televised response? You for it? Against it? Yeah, I mean, I don't have a strong opinion about it. I think as a political endeavor, it's often a fool's errand. It's very difficult to stand in an empty room on a podium and sort of compete with the president standing on the dais in the House of Representatives speaking to the entire government. And so I think it's, it's difficult and it's often handed to some up-and-coming entrepreneur in the party who would like to try and see if this time they can make it work. And, you know, often they can't. I think it probably is rooted in sort of a you know, mid-20th century belief in sort of fairness for airtime on television for, for the parties. I think that's sort of like neither here nor there. If the president of the United States is giving a constitutionally suggested speech, I don't think there's any sort of fairness issue about that being televised by the networks. As a general practice, I don't think it's a bad thing for opposition leaders to be critiquing 
the, the administration's position or anything. And opposition leaders, meaning anyone opposed to what the administration is doing, not necessarily simply the other party. Um, the current State of the Union address is obviously a partisan activity in a lot of ways, but there's been plenty of times in American history where the president might give up and say something in the State of the Union address that a lot of his party disagrees with, right? And this could be anything from, you know, a mid-20th century Democrat talking about civil rights uh, to perhaps a modern Republican president like Bush talking about immigration. Uh, it's not necessarily the case that everyone sort of is in lockstep behind the party. So I think more voices coming out of the State of the Union address from leaders is a good thing. But the actual sort of opposition rebuttal response that is is now sort of like a fixture of sort of the televised version of this, I think is sort of a, you know, in some ways just a waste of time for the parties. Yeah, certainly we can think of um, a variety of instances in recent years where it just didn't go as well as the opposition party had intended. Well, all right, we have exhausted our time. So let me say thanks to you, Matt Glassman, for helping listeners understand what the State of the Union Address is and why Congress hosts it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Understanding Congress, a podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. This program was produced by Jaehan Lee and hosted by Kevin Kosar. You can subscribe to Understanding Congress via Stitcher, iTunes, Google Podcasts, and TuneIn. We hope you'll share this podcast with others and tell us what you think about it by posting your thoughts and questions on Twitter and tagging at AEI. Once again, thank you for listening and have a great day.